0: Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 18. And we'll start in verse 28. John 18, verse 28. We've got uh, really only three or four more weeks left until we finish the book of John. Uh, We have been in this series for uh, some time now. Uh, And we are going to cover a a large portion of uh, Scripture this morning for a very specific purpose. Um, And if you are, uh, as you're turning there, uh, finding chapter 18, verse 28, I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamin Roller. I'm one of the pastors here at what is a week away from being uh, Citizens Church, uh, formally and officially. And so excited about that. Uh, I I know you've probably heard this since being in here, but if you, uh, like many did, even last service that I spoke with, uh, kind of Googled the Village Church and found out there was a campus close to you and drove here and walked in. It was a different church name and just a different um, feel than what you were expecting. There's a story behind that, and we would love to share that uh, story with you. So find one of us after, and we'll let you in on that. So we're going to go. Chapter 18, verse 28, through chapter 19, verse 16. It's a large swath of Scripture, and it tells the story of Jesus' trial before a guy named Pilate. And what you'll see as we read through it is that Pilate... This trial plays out in two different settings. Part of the trial plays out with just Pilate and Jesus, and part of the trial plays out between Pilate and the crowd. And so, in that, it plays out in two different worlds, is where we're going. But read with me, and as we read uh, through all these verses together, would you pay attention to the movement of Pilate throughout these verses? Verse 28 Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Uh, Listen, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified such a large section of Scripture, and I understand that it's really important, and in reading it all together as a whole, we get to see a very important movement that happens in this uh, this Scripture. And so let me, in just a few sentences early on, tell you where we are uh, going. As followers of Jesus, we live in two different worlds at the same time. We live in the world of the crowd and the world of the king, and as we see as this plays out in this chapter, uh, we see that we are invited over and again, as we live in those two worlds, to choose the king and to choose the world of the king. So let me say it again. As believers in Jesus, we live in two worlds. We live in the world of the crowd, and we live in the world of the king. Choose the king. I got my Bible degree from Criswell College down in Dallas. Uh, before transferring to Criswell, I spent a year at Baylor University in Waco. Anybody? Okay. Uh, also thank you uh, to all the Aggies out there for not hissing or whatever it is they tell you to do. Uh, many college campuses are, are like this the way I'm about to describe Baylor. A lot of college campuses are like this, uh, but Baylor feels, it feels like this is especially true for Baylor. The uh, campus is just wildly different from the uh, the city that surrounds the campus especially immediately where it is and so at baylor they actually have a, a phrase for this it's called the baylor bubble and here's how it works baylor is beautiful baylor is a gorgeous campus it's got beautiful landscape to it the buildings are uh beautiful and right in the middle of campus is a bear habitat uh, and that's where the mascots of Baylor live. There's two black bears that live in this habitat right in the middle of campus, which is, I think it's awesome. Uh, there are buildings that are going up because Baylor is, is growing and there's more money coming into to Baylor. And it's just, a, it's just a beautiful little world right there on the campus. As soon as you cross the street, you are in old Waco. Uh, you are in parts of the city. At least this was true when I was there 15 years ago. You are in parts of the city that are declining Uh, A lot of the buildings are older. They're not well kept. A lot of the businesses around are struggling. A lot of the people even are struggling. And and so as a a student there, you live in those two worlds. Uh, You live in the world of a wealthy, private university and all that entails uh, amongst a city or at least a part of the city that is declining. And as a student, you know both are there. Uh, You know the difference between both and you can't help but live in both. And as Christians... Our lives are lived in two different worlds that occupy the same space. Let me explain. We said this two weeks ago that um, the Bible is one story. And when Jesus is arrested in the garden, it begins the climax of that story. And so the world that was lost in a garden in Genesis 3 begins to be restored in another garden. And the way we said it is because Jesus chooses to use his power uh, not to self-promote or self-preserve, but he uses his power to sacrifice himself because, look right at me, because he didn't come to destroy the world, he came to restore the world. And, And so here's what he does. The restoration of the world is going to be accomplished through Jesus By Jesus starting a whole new world right in the middle of the old one, a brand new age that happens right in the middle of the old age. And that's what we see unfolding in the life of Jesus. That's why when he talks to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world, but his kingdom is for the world and his kingdom is in the world. So the kingdom of Jesus, the world of the king, it has heaven as its origin, but it has earth as its destination, and it has the restoration of earth as its aim. And we live in the middle of that. We live in that right now. We live in the world of the crowd, which is the old age, the world run by sin, and the world of the king, which is the, king, which is the world that Jesus, through his love, is building. And all, all of us live in that. And so what we see here is we see Pilate, of all people, this unlikely character in the trial of Jesus, we see him move in and out of both of these worlds. Uh, Pilate is a, a Roman governor, he's appointed by Caesar in 26 AD or something like that, and Pilate is a brutal man. He's not a Jew. He's Roman. He hates the Jews, does not respect them. There are multiple accounts in history of times when Pilate just sent his army out to slaughter thousands of Jews because they opposed him. And so Pilate is a brutal man, does not care for the Jewish people, and he enters in the scene because they uh, bring Jesus to him. Now, Pilate does not live in Jerusalem. Pilate lives in a beach house on the coast. He only comes to Jerusalem when there is a festival in Jerusalem that brings a lot of people to Jerusalem because that's the most likely time that a bunch of Jewish people would get together and say, we're tired of Rome and start a rebellion. Pilate is in Jerusalem, and the only reason he's there is to stamp out a rebellion if it starts, and that's what's happening right here. It's Passover. Thousands of Jewish people have gone into Jerusalem. Pilate leaves his beach house. He comes into the middle of Jerusalem, and he's there to make sure that no Jewish people do anything crazy. And so what would he have been particularly interested in? Well, a Jewish miracle-working teacher who claimed to be what? King. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate. And what kind of man is Pilate? He's a brutal man. And so the expectation in bringing Jesus to Pilate and saying, hey, this guy claims to be king is that Pilate would do what he's done in the past. It was nothing for a guy like Pilate to sentence to death some sort of Jewish carpenter turned teacher who's from the ghettos of Galilee. He would do that and not even flinch. But something changes. Pilate sees Jesus and for whatever reason, he wants to have a conversation with Jesus. And so instead of just passing a sentence, he holds a trial. And the Jewish people refused to go into his house, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And so what that does is it puts this man, Pilate, between these two worlds. He puts him in the house talking to Jesus in the world of the king. It puts him outside talking to the crowd in the world of the crowd. And we get to watch his movements back and forth. And in watching his movements, we get to see how different those two worlds are. We get to see how those worlds contrast so uh, so uniquely and extremely from one another. And in that, we are invited to see, friends, that we are all Pilate. We all live in this space, in these two different worlds at the same time. And we are all invited. Every day we wake, we are invited to choose not the world of the crowd, but to choose the king. We'll walk through that together. Look with me again at verse 28. We start in the world of the crowd, Caiaphas, or uh. Pilate is talking to the crowd of Jewish men, and it says this in 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Hear this. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him. And the Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We're in the world of the crowd, and here's what we see. The world of the crowd is marked by self-righteousness. It's marked by a self-constructed morality. Here's what's true. The world of the crowd, the world that doesn't follow Jesus or believe in Jesus They are not a world that is absent of any morals. In the book of Judges, it it says this refrain about the people. It says there was no king and the people did what was right in their own eyes. What's scary about that is not just that they're doing wrong. What's scary about that is that they are doing wrong while believing it's right. And so hear me, the world of the crowd is not absence of a sense of right and wrong. It's not absence of a sense of morality. Like the average person would self-identify as a decent person. The average person would not self-identify as I'm an immoral person, right? No, I'm decent. I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. And so it's not the absence of the sense of right and wrong. In the world of the crowd, it's always, always when my standard for right and wrong comes from me instead of from God. Look. It's a group of rule-following men who believe themselves to be righteous, who delivered Jesus over to die, and they are even fighting for their own standard of righteousness as they do it. What does it say? They would not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat Passover. Do you see the irony there? Do you see the hypocrisy? That uh, law is not an Old Testament law. After the Old Testament is written, there's a group of rabbis that add to the laws of the Old Testament. And one of the laws that they add is that if you go into the house of a Gentile, as a Jew, it makes you unclean. And you have to go through this process of making yourself clean so that you can uh, celebrate or or enjoy the meals or whatever. And so that's what's happening here. These men hold themselves to this standard that their own rabbis had constructed, and they bring Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate says, hey, come on in. They say, no, that... That wouldn't be right. We're moral men. We're men of conviction. We're men that are committed to the ways of God. We're committed to the standards of God. And so it would not be right for us to come in because then we would be defiled. Also here, take this innocent man and kill him. Like, they would not make themselves unclean by going into the house, but they would accept the guilt of having an innocent man put to death and not even flinch. And that's the world of the crowd. Look, In the world of the crowd, the power of self-righteousness to numb us to our own hypocrisy just can't be overstated. Listen, it's not a Jewish Pharisee problem. We know that, right? It's not even a religious person's problem. We know that. It is a human problem. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Everyone carries with them a sense of right and wrong, and usually you see that sense of right and wrong come out of their life by whatever they're outraged by. But in the world of the crowd, who gets to define that? I do. Who gets to determine that? I do. And here's the problem. I am not good. I am not eternal. And so whatever standard of morality I construct for myself, I can't help but uh, fail to meet even my own standard. I can't help to eventually be a hypocrite and for that to come out of my life as moral bias and as hypocrisy. So it's really, as shocking as it might be, it's not that hard to understand how a group of moral men believing themselves to be morally justified in keeping this ritual at the same kind could deliver over the best human that ever lived to die. And and don't miss that the ritual parts, the religious practice parts of their morality are the ones that they uh, leaned into most tightly to feel justified and to feel right. Like, not going into the house is easy. Going to church is easy, unless you have toddlers. But listening to a man uh, who taught to love people that I don't want to love, to worship God in ways that cost me a lot, I, yeah, kill him. We'll stay outside because we love God so much. How blind. Listen. The world of the crowd follows a God who never disagrees with them. The world of the crowd holds themselves to to a standard of morality that never challenges them and follows a God that never challenges them because my idea of right and wrong comes from me. And then I project that idea of right and wrong onto God, which means what? I'm my own God. What world do you live in, friends? Like... Who gets to define right and wrong for you? The the world of the crowd is the world of self-made morality that doesn't actually bring change, but offers a way for us to be blind to the evil in our lives and feel okay about it all at the same time. That's the world of the crowd. The world of, of the king is a world where the standard for right and wrong is not a standard, it's actually a person. It's Jesus, and he changes us into the people that we actually want to become and offers grace to us every time we fail. Which world do you live in? Look at verse 33. Pilate enters the world of the king. He entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew, your own nation? And the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world, if... My kingdom were of this world, you'd know it how. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose... And for this purpose, I was born and I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He exits the world of the crowd and he enters into the world of the king. And what Jesus puts on display for him is that his kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is built differently and operates differently. And at the heart of his kingdom is sacrificial love. Pilate's having this conversation with him. He's trying to talk to Jesus about the charges and it feels like Jesus is being evasive. It's not because Jesus doesn't want Pilate to know he's a king. It's that Jesus knows that Pilate has a definition in his mind for what a king is that's different than the kind of king that Jesus is. It would be like someone coming up to you and saying, hey, are you religious? Well, you are. Uh, But you don't know what that means to them, right? So you probably wouldn't offer a yes or no question. You'd want to clarify. And that's what Jesus does. He clarifies that he is a king, but his kingdom is different. And then what evidence does he use that the kingdom that he is bringing is not from here, but it is for here? My followers don't fight. Or at least they don't fight the way that the world fights. They don't have swords. Like Rome is built through violence and it's built through military conquest and the world of the crowd uh, is outside in this moment screaming for what? Death and hurling insults and there's mocking and chaos and anger and that's how the world of the crowd operates and Jesus says that the world of the king, the world that he's bringing is different than that. It's not built that way. Well then how, how is it built? If it's not built through your followers fighting the way that the world fights... How does it move forward? How is it advanced? This is what Jesus talked about in chapter 13 and in chapter 15. You will be known by your what? Love. The world will advance. The the world of the king is marked at the heart is a sacrificial love. And that's how the world is expanded. John Calvin He's an incredible theologian, pastor. We are indebted to him and to his writings and his ministry for so much of, of how we are the way we are and why we are the way we are. But if you read any of his biographies, you will see that like us, uh, he was not perfect. In fact, at one point in his ministry, he has a really low, really dark uh, point. Uh, they bring a man to him who had been accused of teaching false doctrine, of teaching heresy. And John Calvin brings the case against this man and then agrees to sentence this man to death. And it's a low point. You don't kill people for preaching false doctrine, right? Uh, It's encouraging to hear that even the theological giants are in need uh, of grace as as we are. But one of Calvin's biographers is telling the story and talking about uh, what happened. And he said this about uh, the whole situation. He should have never fought the battles of God with the weapons of the world. It's not the way that the world of the king is advanced. Those are not the weapons that we've been given. It's not how, uh, at the core of the world of the king, it's not what's true about it. And listen, friends, it is a really toxic and divided world of the crowd right now. It is. Do you feel that? Surely you do, if you're paying attention. And what I see What I see more and more, that I will just fight with all I have to not be true about us. What I see more and more are people of faith in an attempt to advance something of Christianity or protect something of Christianity, doing so through slander and rage and character attacks and mocking. And what that means is that they are either fighting for something that's not Christianity or fighting the battles of God with the weapons of the world, and either way, they're missing the king. Either way, they're missing the king. Either way, they're becoming less like him and not more like him. When you fight with the weapons of the world, you always end up becoming what you claim to oppose. Always. Where is Jesus right now? On the floor, in chains. Before this uh, puppet governor, and he has all the power in the world over this dude. He doesn't have to talk to this dude or listen to this dude. We just saw him six hours before floor a Roman army by introducing himself. And what does he do? He remains silent. Why? Because he doesn't fight that way. To advance a kingdom that is not from the world but is for the world and will only heal the world if it's different than the world. And so he remains silent. And then when he does speak, how is he treating Pilate? He's trying to win him over with truth. He's trying to witness to this guy. He's like, if you listen to my voice, I'll lead you to the truth. And that's Jesus. At the heart of his life is sacrificial love. Look, and if we belong to the world of the king, we will engage the world of the crowd the same way we see Jesus here. Hear me, friends. The world of the king is not advancing in the comment section of a Facebook post. It's just not. It's advancing in the way that we love our neighbors It's advancing in the way that we give of ourselves. Like, uh, we cannot proclaim the world of the king has come and sound just like the world of the crowd when we do. What world do you live in? (laughs) The world of the king is, is marked by followers who love those around them and proclaim what is true in a way that is loving. It's marked by people who want to see heaven come to earth, but it does not fight with the world's weapons. We are, if you will, citizens of a different world. Look with me at verse 38 of chapter 18. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And now he's back outside in the world of the crowd. He says, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a You probably have a footnote next to that word in your Bible like I do, and next to that footnote, it says the word insurrectionist. Remember that. Uh, The world of the crowd is marked by self-righteousness, and the world of the crowd always, always chooses saviors who look like us and ask less of us. The world of the crowd will always ask for a Jesus that looks more like us and asks less of us. Here's what I mean. Barabbas, his full name, if you look at the other gospels, is Jesus Barabbas. And we've done some work here before. That word uh, that he's used to describe Robert, like we said, is also uh, could mean insurrectionist. It means rebel. It means freedom fighter. And why did we say Pilate's in Jerusalem to begin with? To stamp out rebellions. If Barabbas is in Pilate's custody, it's not because he stole something. What Mark tells us is it tells us that, we, uh, that he uh, is in Pilate's custody because he had committed murder in the rebellion. In fact, the two men crucified next to Jesus are part of that rebellion, and they were likely disciples of Jesus Barabbas. And so here's what happens. Pilate brings out this man named Jesus Barabbas, and his name Barabbas means son of the father, and literally has one Jesus on one side and one Jesus on the other side and says, which Jesus do you want? They're both savior figures. One is Jesus, son of the father. The other is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus Barabbas uh, offers a kind of salvation that says freedom is going to be found in Rome dying. And Jesus The Christ says, freedom's gonna be found in you dying to yourself. And the crowd says, set free the one that looks like us. Set free the one that believes like us and agrees with us and asks less of us. And that's always how the world of the crowd operates. Once or twice a week, I will read um, the Jesus Storybook Bible to my daughter Adeline. She's five, almost six. And one of her favorite stories to read is the story of Zacchaeus. I think it's because in her mind, they're the same height. And so she likes that. Uh, And so I'll read the story, Zacchaeus, he's a wee little man and he's in a tree and um, he meets Jesus and then I'll ask her, hey, can you summarize the story for me? Can Can you tell me what happened? She's like, yeah, Zacchaeus, he meets Jesus and he gets out of the tree and they eat dinner and then Zacchaeus like gives all of his money away. And I'm like, yeah, that's, some details are missing, but that's pretty much it. And so after we read the story, I will pray with her. Now Adeline, she does not like praying out loud. And so to try and help her learn to pray, to try to teach her to pray, what we will do is I will pray out loud and I will start a sentence and I will let her finish the sentence. And it's a way to just teach her to talk to God. And so we're doing this about the story of Zacchaeus and we said, thank you, Jesus, for loving Zacchaeus. You are so, and she said, kind. And then we said, the story of Zacchaeus teaches us that you are, and she said, loving. And then I said, without you, Zacchaeus would be And she said, really rich. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny. I just said amen, and we (laughs) went to bed. I I told that story a dozen, you know, when your kids do something cute, you just tell the story over and over again. And and I've told the story a dozen times. and, And what became interesting to me in telling the story is that I thought she would fill in the blank based on what Zacchaeus gained And instead, she filled it in based on what he lost. She filled it in based on what following Jesus cost him, not what following Jesus did for him. In the world of the crowd prefers a Jesus that costs less. The world of the crowd refers a Jesus uh, that looks like us and does for us without demanding of us. And so Barabbas represented a salvation that said this, your greatest problem is Rome and if they die, you'll be free. And Jesus represents a salvation that says your greatest problem is yourself and if I die the death you deserve, then you will be free. And the knee-jerk cry of the heart is for the Jesus who tells us our enemies deserve to die, not the one who tells us that we do. Because if it's that that we deserve and he absorbs that death for us in our Place. What do we offer him in return? Whatever he wants. What could he ask that we would not? That he would not have every right to demand of us and of our lives? So no, no, no. Give me the one that's easier to follow. Give me the one. What world do you live in, my friends? The world of the crowd says, "Give me a savior that looks like me. Give me a savior that tells me my problems are around me, not inside of me. Works for me and asks little of me." And that's not the world of the King. That's not the world that Jesus came to bring. Chapter 19, verse 8, he is back inside with Jesus. I don't know a portion of Scripture that I love more than I love this. When Pilate heard this statement, he is even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, "'Where are you from?' But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, "'You will not speak to me. "'Do you not know that I have authority to release you "'and authority to crucify you?' Jesus answered him. "'You would have no authority over me at all "'unless it had been given you from above. "'And guess what?' Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The world of the king is built by love and the world of the king is as secure as the king. Look, Jesus is silent, could defend himself. We know this about Jesus. He out-argues everybody. He knows he's God, right? He has all the wisdom in the world. He stays silent. And how does he remain quiet? Well, he only needs to defend himself if he's not in control. That's why you argue with someone, right? To try to get control back in the relationship. And he is able to remain silent. He doesn't have to speak up. Why? He doesn't need anything from Pilate. His life is not in Pilate's hand. It's in God's hands, in complete control. And he says that the authority that you have, you only have because it's been given to you from above and God's in control of everything that's gonna happen to me. And also, and I love this part, you and those who have delivered me over to you are in sin that balance is so important. God's in complete control, and also God will hold evil and injustice responsible. And so in that world that Jesus lives in, in the world of the king, because God is in complete control, that world is secure. That world is not going anywhere. And you know why that's so important? If we, could just have a, if we had a conversation over coffee at Mudleaf, right? So much of that conversation could be distilled down to this. I want to know that I'm okay. And I want to know that I'm going to be okay. And often where we look for answers to that, am I going to be okay, is the world around us. And if the world around us feels insecure, then it makes us feel insecure. If the world around us feels shaky, then we feel shaky. And Jesus, who can remain silent in front of his accuser because he knows that the man in front of him is not the one that's ultimately in control, and he knows the man in front of him will be held accountable for whatever wrong he does, how secure is that? How secure is the, king, is the world of the king who does not even have to argue because he knows the person in front of him just has no real power? Listen, there is no power that can stand against the king and his kingdom. The most powerful man in all Judea is interrogating Jesus. And who's the one really asking the questions? Jesus. The most powerful man in all, Judea, is trying to figure out what he's going to decide, what verdict is he going to come down with, and who's the one who passed a sentence? Jesus did, just now. The king is secure. The world of the king is secure. My son, he's eight, he told me a few months ago that he wants to be a pastor. He's in this place where he wants to be several things, uh, and so they change every day. But on this particular day, he told me he wanted to be a running back in the NFL, retire and become a pastor. And, and I thought, bud, you've got a really good shot at one of those. And so, um, but when he said, if I can be honest, when he said he wanted to be a pastor, my immediate reaction, maybe you'd think it would be excitement or pride. My immediate, immediate reaction was fear. And some of that is because there's a, a unique pain to ministry that I, I just don't know that I want him to experience. Most of that it's because I just have no idea what it's going to look like to pastor in this culture 25 years from now. What's the crowd going to sound like then? What are the challenges? What will it mean for him? What will it cost him? And so I was scared for him, and in some ways scared for the church and in all that, I remembered uh, the first time I went to Israel. I've been to Israel twice in the last five years. Our church, Citizens Church, is going to be going again next March with a couple other churches. would love for you to come if you'd like to go. One of my place, favorite places to go is a place called Caesarea Philippi, and it's this place you see in Matthew 16. This is where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says the gates of hell will not prevail against the world of the king and the church that is going to inhabit the world of the king. And so, when you go to Israel, you go to Caesarea Philippi to see where that conversation took place. While you're there, what you also see is you also see that there is this huge cave in the side of a mountain. And that cave was believed in Roman mythology to be the birthplace of the Roman god Pan. And the Roman god Pan was kind of the origin god for all of the other gods that came. And so, he was a really big deal, and he had a really uh, big following. And people would come from all over the world to visit that cave at one point and to offer sacrifices and to worship Pan and to tell Pan's story. So for Christians at the site where Jesus said uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the world of the king, and then for, for Pan, it was the site where they would go and celebrate his birthplace. And so I remember being there the first time I was there, and I remember sitting and just being struck by the reality, no one is there for the other God anymore. No one. That place was crawling with people from all over the world, people from China and people from Germany and people from Korea and people from Africa and people from America. No one's there for Pan. No one. Like, the birthplace of the fake God was an afterthought, And all the people that were there, they were there because of what Jesus had done in their life. Because of the word that was spoken at that place had gone out and had proven true. No one is there saying, uh, boasting in all that Pan had delivered them from. He rescued me from addiction or he rescued me out of abuse or he uh, fixed and put back and restored my marriage or loved me when I was at my worst. Nobody is saying that. Nobody is talking about life before Pan and life after him. The ones who are there are there declaring what is true about Jesus and just sitting in that, it was such a foretaste of the truth that Jesus first spoke there, that no matter what happens the king and the world of the king isn't going anywhere. And one day, the world of the crowd and the world of the other fake gods will be trampled under the feet of the followers of Jesus who say today what Peter said then. He's the Christ. He's the king. So I don't, I don't know what it looks like 25 years from now, but I know the king and his people just aren't going anywhere because the king is secure. He's not threatened by the weapons of the world. It will last forever. And so my friends, what world do you live in? The world of the crowd does not have that. The world of the crowd is filled with fear. The world of the crowd has to hoard whatever control they think they have, because if I lose it, then all of a sudden my life kind of unravels. The world of the crowd is is, uh, marked by trying to keep our life pain-free as much as we can because in the world of the crowd, happiness is the goal and pain is the enemy and it serves no purpose. And we all know that that world is so shaky. It's so shaky. But the world of the king is secure. Nothing can threaten the fact that with the king, we know how all of this ends. And nothing can change that those who belong to the king are as secure as he is. What world do you live in? From here, in these last few verses, 12 through 16, Pilate comes out and he tries to release Jesus and they start talking about something that's really sensitive to Pilate. They start talking about Caesar and Caesar is Pilate's king. And then Pilate takes Jesus in front of a group of Jewish men and women and says, shall I crucify your king? And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. They reject God as king over their life and they tell Pilate, who you worship?" we worship. Who rules you, rules us. I've been asking you the past 30 minutes or so this question, what world do you live in? And it's somewhat unfair because we live in both at the same time. I think a better way to ask the question is this, which world has your heart? The world of the crowd or the world of the king? Ultimately, the world of the crowd is the world that Pilate knew and the world that the crowd knew. And so they chose the king that neither of them actually liked Because the world of the crowd had their heart. And what does that do to Jesus? That puts Jesus on a cross all by himself. He goes alone to die as the one lone member of a world that he alone belongs to. Why? That we might join him that we might be part of that world that he is starting. Because look, our hearts choose the world of the crowd because it's the world that they were born in and the world they belong to. And so Jesus dies that our hearts would change and we can be brought into that world with him. It's what Paul means when he says, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son who's blessed forever, amen. And 40 years after this moment, the same Caesar that they gave their allegiance to would send his armies into Jerusalem to level the whole place and to crush everything and everyone because in the world of the crowd, the crowd is always crushed by the kings of the world. But in the world of the king, Jesus is crushed for the crowd. He's crushed for Barabbas and he's crushed for Pilate and he's crushed for the chief priest and he's crushed for you and he's crushed for me. Why? That we might join him in the world that he is restoring. Friends, there's the world of the crowd and there's the world of the king and we live in both. Choose Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you for, I thank you for this church. I thank you that you have not brought us here together as a people to be entertained. I thank you that you've not brought us here as a people so that maybe the fears that we have would be massaged or, or, uh, or to come in and to get, uh, God, cheap answers to really important questions, but you've called us in to be a part of something that will last forever, made us citizens of the world that both is and is to come and is never going away. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a different kind of king, that you're the kind of king that does not crush your enemies, but is crushed for them, that they might join you in the world that will last forever. I thank you that you uh, have then brought us together in, from all different places and all different backgrounds with all different passions and all different stories to be loved by you, and commissioned by you to be different. May we live our lives, King Jesus, our hearts are yours, and may we live lives of love that are confident in how secure you are, and therefore how safe we are no matter what happens to us. We love you. Shall we pray? Amen.